In this episode, I want to share why my family doesn't use the word promise, except for all the times I'll probably be using it in this episode. You're listening to Onward in the Faith with Ray Burns. Ray is dedicated to equipping Christians to understand why they believe what they believe so that they can keep moving onward in their faith toward maturity in Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, visit patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. And make sure you visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. Now here's Ray with today's topic. Promises play an important role in our lives. Even if we don't use the word promise, there's a certain guarantee that we expect from almost every area of our lives that we basically rely on in order to perform basic functions. We trust the promise of our bank that if we put money in there, they're not going to just walk away with it. If they do, we trust the promises of our government that they will punish those who would break the law in that way. We trust our mechanic that he won't steal our car. We trust hospitals that they won't switch our baby out with a lifelike robot. Whatever we're doing in life, we need a certain level of trust in order to do anything. If we didn't have that trust, if we didn't, in a way, walk in faith that everyone wasn't out to get us, then we couldn't do anything. And in our personal lives, we are much more willing to make specific promises, whether it's promising that we are telling the truth or promising that we will do something. We feel comfort when people will do that for us because we feel that if someone is willing to promise, then what they say or what they're going to do, it's more reliable. Uh, But we will also use promises in order to hold ourselves accountable for the things that we say. If we are promising that we're telling the truth, we want to be very certain that we are to the best of our ability. If we promise our friends, our spouse, our boss that we'll do something, we've now committed to it because we promised. And there's a certain level of power and guarantee associated with that word. But here's the problem. As Christians, when we really think about promises, we run into issues because we understand our sinful nature and our general weakness as finite beings. So on one hand, we realize that we have a sin nature and we are at the core of ourselves wicked. And so despite promising, we know that we and others aren't guaranteed to follow through with that promise because sin may be more tempting to satisfy than what we've promised to do. And likewise, just being weak creatures that we are and limited in our power, just because we promise something doesn't mean that we can follow through with it. And while people don't necessarily believe that, well, if you promise, then you have to do it no matter what, there is kind of that understanding and that implication that, well, if you've promised it, then I'm trusting that it's going to happen. And when we dig into it, as we're going to, we're going to realize that by making a promise, we assume things about ourselves that we just know are untrue and unfitting and impossible for us to live up to. And I came to this realization several years ago, And the passage that really got me thinking about this was James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, 
if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, one of the things I love about James is that he is very blunt. He gets right to what it is to live a godly Christian life where we are keeping Christ foremost in our minds and having a very good understanding of who we are, both as children of God, but also as weak human beings that love idolatry. And now in this passage, James is coming flat out and saying that our pride is a huge problem and a huge factor in why we make promises. It's because we are prideful. It's because we have an elevated and inflated sense of ourselves that we think that we can confidently say that, yes, I will do this. I will not do that. And in the end, he says that you boast in your arrogance. You know, he, he calls us prideful. And he says that that kind of boasting is evil. And while we understand that all sin is evil, we don't often see it stated that bluntly and that harshly in every single way. And if we take a moment and think about it, it almost seems like God here is making a really big deal about something that shouldn't be. You know, to make a promise is evil? How does that make any sense? Well, that's what I started wondering when I came across this passage and really started thinking about it and thinking about the implications of it. And what I started realizing has had a huge impact on my own life as well as how I lead my family. And so I hope that uh, this discussion will at the very least get you thinking and maybe even making the word promise something you won't say anymore. So what is the big deal about promises? Well, promises imply... I believe two things. First, when we make a promise, we assume that we have a level of control and knowledge over the future. And we just don't have that. You know, that's what James talks about in verse 14 when he says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears and then vanishes. In other words, when we say that when we promise that something is going to happen, whether tomorrow, whether in a few minutes, We assume that we know the future and can say with authority that a thing is going to take place or not going to take place. And so when we make promises, even if we realize that, well, I don't know that it's going to happen, by making a promise, we act like we do. We act like because we've said it, it's going to come to pass. Another issue is that if we have to make promises, then we assume that as followers of Jesus Christ, we have degrees of honesty or degrees of commitment that we can make. In other words, we can say something with a promise and say something without a promise. And if we promise it, then that's really true. It's We're really going to be honest then. But that then, of course, assumes that if we don't make a promise, we aren't necessarily bound to being truthful and honest in the things that we say. And, of course, that's not what God calls us to. You know, one of the commandments is don't lie. It's not don't make false promises, don't tell really bad lies. God, who loves truth, wants us to love truth as well. And so we shouldn't need a promise to add impact and meaning and importance to the things that we say. And likewise, we shouldn't commit to something and only take it seriously or only be willing to sacrifice or do what's necessary to make it happen only if we add the word promise to the thing that we said. You know, and so for an example, as a parent, this is kind of what I immediately thought of as I started pondering this passage is if my child asks me if I love them and I say yes, 
I want them to trust that no matter what, because I've said that I love them. But if they instead say, well, do you promise that you love me? And if I then promise and then they feel like they can trust me, there's an issue there because I want my child to know that I love them simply because I've said that I love them and they can trust that if dad says it, it's true as far as he has awareness or can control it. But if they realize that they they should doubt my love unless I've added a promise to it, there's a huge issue with the level of integrity and the level of truthfulness that marks my life. Now, realistically, I started as I started really thinking about this passage over you know the days and weeks, I started seeing where the issue of this truly came from. And that was when my oldest daughter was about four or five. And I remember that she would want to, the specific situation is that she would want to ride her bike throughout the day. And there were times where we just weren't able to you know go outside and ride bikes. And so I would say, well, no, we can do it after dinner. And she would ask me to promise or I would promise her and say, I promise we can't ride your bike now, but we will do it after dinner. And of course, I would try to keep that word to her, but sometimes things just happen. You know, she had a two-year-old brother at that time, and life in general just comes up to where while I may have had every intention of taking her to ride her bike after dinner some night, just because I promised didn't guarantee that it would happen. There could be any number of things that would come up in the few hours between those two times. And now as parents, we all understand that happening. You know, we make promises and we try to follow through with them, but we can't always. But what I started realizing is that I was teaching my daughter something when I would make a promise. I would, first, I would imply that I had power to make something happen against all odds. I would tell her that I've made this promise and so it's going to happen simply because I say so. Because I have used the word promise, the future is now guaranteed. And I would want her to trust me without any doubt simply because I promised her that it would happen. She was free to doubt me if I didn't promise, but if I said that magic word, then that should give her more confidence in the things that I said and it should help her to rest in that completely. And then the big issue came whenever I would fail to keep that promise. Now, one, I would, of course, break her trust. You know, dad promised and dad didn't do what he promised. There's there's hurt there because I have failed her. But what I also realized I was doing, and I found this to be really the biggest issue, is that I was weakening the power of promises in general. I was teaching her that in the world, when someone promises something, that doesn't mean you should trust it. It means that they just really, really want it to happen. Because if we're honest, that is kind of how we do treat promises. We treat them as, I'm promising, which means that I really, really hope it happens. I'm really, really trying to be honest in what I'm saying or genuine in what I say we're going to do. But as Christians, we need to pause and realize kind of the ramifications that's going to have on our worldview on the worldview of those around us, and really what we're saying about God. Because let's contrast us making promises with God. Because God promises, and God cannot fail. And so when God makes a promise in the Bible, when he says that something's going to happen, it's not that he really hopes it will, or that he has every intention of making something happen. When God says it, it's going to happen. 
and it's going to happen because God has said it. It's not that he's a fortune teller predicting the future. It's that God sets out what the future is. And because he has said it, we can trust without a doubt that it's going to happen. And as I've talked in the past, when I talk about we don't need to doubt, you know, we can just have faith that it's going to happen. That's not a blind faith. But because we know who God is, because we understand his power, his sovereignty, his goodness, if he says that something's going to happen, we trust it based on who he is, not just blindly, but because we have no reason to believe otherwise. And now consider just some of the promises we see in the Bible, because God doesn't always use the word promise, but again, it's that same idea that if God says it, it's going to happen. So Deuteronomy 31 verse 8 says, The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now think about specifically what that had to mean to Israel when God gave them that promise. That he said that he would be with them. That he wouldn't forsake them. He wouldn't abandon them or give up on them. And ultimately, he told them he would not fail them. So whatever God had said was going to happen, they should trust that it would happen. And because God said these things, because he had given them this promise, he gave them comfort. He told them, don't fear or be dismayed. And now, as believers today, we love and worship that same God. That same God who wouldn't fail Israel or forsake them isn't going to fail or forsake us. And therefore, we can trust and rest in the fact that we don't need to fear. We don't need to be dismayed because God has promised these things about himself. But we couldn't have that confidence. We couldn't have that rest and that peace if God's promises were just good intentions and nothing more. Now consider also 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, see what God has promised here. He said that if we do this, he will do that. And in this instance, if we confess our sins, he will forgive our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, this is a promise for unbelievers and especially for believers. If you are someone who has not realized and placed your faith in the fact that Christ was God, he came to earth and took the punishment for every wrong thing that we've ever done. He paid for our sin on the cross, and because of that, we have no reason to be punished by God. Now, if you're someone who hasn't realized that, then this verse is for you, because it says that if we confess our sins, in other words, if we confess the evil we've done, the the laws of God that we have broken, if we confess to him that we have lived our lives as enemies against him, God promises here that he will forgive us of those sins. He will cleanse us from unrighteousness because we don't just confess those sins when we do that. We repent of them. We realize they're evil. We realize what they've done and how they've offended a holy God and made us his enemies and they've sentenced us to death. And if we go to God in confession, if we ask Jesus Christ to save us, he will save us. The payment that he paid on the cross will be applied to our debt. And our debt will be clear now and forever. We will be cleansed from all unrighteousness. But as believers, we can rest in this promise as well, because despite Christ paying the penalty for our sins, we still sin. We aren't made perfect in our day-to-day interactions because of that. We are not enemies of God. The sins that we commit are not held over us as punishment, and God's wrath is no longer on us. But we still do have sin. 
And so here God says that even after resting in the truth of Christ and what he did on the cross, even after confessing our sins and repenting of them and asking Jesus to save us, even when we sin after that, we can still be forgiven because God is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins. And he will continue to cleanse us from unrighteousness, not just the unrighteousness in terms of the debt that we owed for all the crimes we committed, but also just how sin infects our lives. God will cleanse us of that if we confess to him, if we repent of those sins. But again, our very salvation, our very walk with Jesus Christ hinges on God keeping this promise. It hinges on the fact that if we do truly confess, not just as an action, but in our hearts, if we are broken in our spirits over our sin and realize how they affect our walk with Jesus Christ and offend a holy God— If we are truly understanding those things and we are confessing them, we trust that that cleanses us, that we don't have to do extra actions and extra works or keep the law or things like that in order for God to also forgive us and to also cleanse us. But instead, it's confession and repentance that does it. We trust that promise. We have to trust that promise. But if we can't trust it, If God's promises are just well-intentioned, then we can be in real trouble when we get to heaven and God says, oh, no, actually, you needed to confess, but also do this extra thing. And then finally, and this is, of course, not the only promise God makes, but an important one um, that really leads out of our previous one is John 6, 37, where Christ tells us, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And so here we have Christ making two promises. First is the effectiveness of salvation. Those who are going to be saved are saved. Christ isn't going to fail to rescue us from our sin. And then not only that, when we are in Christ, when we have repented and confessed and our sins are forgiven and our debt to God is clean, our slate is, is wiped clear, Christ promises, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. In other words, our salvation isn't dependent on our behavior, on our good works. Christ isn't going to cast us out no matter what we do. And of course, that's not a license to sin and to just abuse the forgiveness of him because we are given the Holy Spirit. And through that, he spends every moment of our lives basically cleaning out our hearts and convicting us of sin and making us hate it not because we're scared of losing our salvation, but because it's something that our Savior hates. Our God hates it. The Holy Spirit living in us is repulsed by sin in our lives. And we want to love the things that God loves and hate what he hates. And because God hates sin, we want to hate sin. But even those times where we do love sin too much, where we embrace idolatry and fall away from our God in one way or another— He's not going to get angry and say, okay, I can't do this anymore. We're done. You're out of here. No, here Christ promises the one who comes to him will not be cast out. And we have confidence. We have rest in the fact that our life in Christ now isn't about earning salvation or keeping salvation or proving ourselves. It's simply walking with our Savior day by day, making ourselves hate the things of the world more and love the things of God even more. And the only way we do this, and the only way we could possibly do it, is through the Holy Spirit in our lives. But we can have peace, we can have rest in knowing that whatever we do, however we fail, God's not just going to wipe his hands and be done with us because we've just 
that was the final straw that broke the camel's back. God is eternally patient and long-suffering and understanding of our weakness. Christ in John 6.37 promises that he is mighty to save and mighty to keep us no matter what. And we praise him for that because we have to trust that he is faithful, he is true, that he isn't making these promises and we just hope that he's really being genuine about it. But when we die and we stand before him in judgment, Christ says, oh, I really tried to keep you, but I guess I couldn't keep that promise like I hoped. That's not Christ, and we are so thankful for that. But now, understanding all that, understanding that basically everything we read in the Bible, everything that God says, we are taking him at his word and trusting him to keep it simply because he said it, we can realize that we base our entire lives around God keeping his promises, not just for salvation, but even for ultimate peace and satisfaction found in Christ alone. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Christ says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so here we trust the things that Christ is saying here. We trust that we need to come to him and that he has rest. He has contentment for our souls, that ultimate satisfaction is found in a life spent pursuing him and serving him. And so because we trust these things that Christ is saying to us, it affects everything. It affects how we train our children. You know, it makes us say no to them because their happiness isn't our highest goal. It's training our children to understand Jesus Christ, to have discipline and self-control, and to ultimately grow up to be adults who also love and serve Jesus, hopefully more than their parents ever did. You know, we center our friendships and our marriages around Jesus Christ and what he says about serving and not seeking to please ourselves and not being selfish, but instead loving and serving the other person and esteeming others more highly than ourselves. The things in Ephesians that Paul talks about with marriage, we take that seriously because we trust the things that Christ has said and that even though the idea of a wife submitting or a husband sacrificing himself as Christ sacrifices for the church, those are completely against how the world teaches us about marriage, but we trust it and we follow it because we trust in Christ's promises. And ultimately, we as believers are willing to sacrifice everything for Jesus Christ. In a big way, that means that we're willing to give up our lives to serve him, whether that means going to dangerous areas, whether that means dying through persecution because we aren't willing to give up our worship of Christ. But perhaps even harder than dying is being willing to sacrifice our lives for him for 40 or 60 or 80 years. And by that, I'm talking about what we see in Galatians 2.20, which says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So when we talk about living our lives for Jesus Christ, it's not just us having our best life now, us succeeding through the power of God or anything like that. It's talking about self-control and even self-denial. It's about giving up pleasures in this life because while they may be good now, ultimately they are worthless and even harmful and dangerous for our spiritual health. 
It talks about taking the time to have discipline in our lives for how we use our money, how we spend our time, the things that we focus on, you know, whether it's reading our Bibles every day and studying them, whether it's talking to others about Christ, prayer, there's all kinds of things in our lives that we give up and surrender for Christ. We, we take everything about our lives and lay them at the feet of Christ and say, Christ, you've given me this time in my life. You've given me this money, my children, my marriage, my friends, my job, whatever. I lay them at your feet, and I want you to do with them what you desire. I want to dedicate them to you. And again, when we go back to that passage in Matthew 11 about his yoke is easy and his burden is light, these things we don't do because Christ wants us to suffer. He does it because even though the world says, spend your money how you want, have all the free time you need, your life is about your happiness, even though that's what the world tells us, there's no contentment and satisfaction in that, ultimately. But when we give those things up to Jesus Christ, that is where our peace and rest is because we are... Again, living out this Galatians 2.20 about our lives being Christ living through us to where, ideally, everything we do, everything we say, everything we desire starts with Christ above all. Even if that means not getting what we want, ultimately we will get what we want because if we are wanting Christ to be glorified above all, then all these things that we think will make us happy, if we need to give them up for the sake of Christ— we can do it with joy and gladness, knowing that in the end, it's going to be for the best because it's for Christ. And there's nothing greater and nothing higher than pursuing him. So to get back on track and go back to the original topic. So why understanding all of that about the dangers of making promises and what it teaches about the power and majesty of God who alone is able to keep promises? Why then do I not make promises? Why do I specifically tell my kids I'm not going to promise them anything, and I never want them to promise. Well, first of all, by living that way and trying to lead my family in that way, we acknowledge our weaknesses above all. We realize that we can't make promises because we have no guarantee of what's going to happen one second from now, let alone a few hours or days or months from now. I mean, you think about just the what's happening in the world today with this whole coronavirus thing. How many parents... Or spouses promised, oh, next year we're going to go here for vacation, or we'll do this or that. And vacations have been completely blown up. Jobs have been lost. Lives have been lost. These things that we were so certain of that would happen, we're realizing that we had no control over. We had no concept that the year 2020 would look the way that it does. And that's just true of every area of our lives. We can't make promises because we can't keep the promises. But then on the flip side of that, by reserving promises only to God, we give him sovereignty, we give him power, and we give ultimately recognition of who he is alone. Because we realize that promises should only be made by those who can keep them. And when we have a proper understanding of God and us, we realize that, well, only God should make promises because only God can keep them. And so in a practical level... What I've tried to teach my family by understanding all of this is that, number one, I want my family to realize that our word is our bond, that we shouldn't have degrees of truth or degrees of effort that we're going to put into something, that whether we say I promise or not, we should be just as focused and desiring to be honest or to fulfill what we would like 
to fulfill for someone else. And so what that means is that, number one, I want my family and me to value truth without any kind of qualifications. So when it comes to telling the truth and being honest, I want us to tell the truth simply because it's the truth, and we want to love the truth. God hates lying. God loves truth. Therefore, we don't need some kind of special addition saying promise in order for us to suddenly take truth seriously. It should be a serious and important thing to us at all times. And then in terms of commitment, I don't want them to need me or my wife to promise that we'll do something. And I don't want them to feel like they will only really follow through with things that they promise. Because I want us to realize that we should just do whatever is in our power to do what we've said we'll do. To take it seriously simply because we've said it. Again, understanding that we have limited power, and I'll get to that. But ultimately, if we've said we'll do something, no matter how big or how small it is, I want my family to understand the value of sacrificing and working hard and struggling in order to keep the thing that we've said. Now, the second major thing that I want my family to learn by us not making promises is that I want them to learn how to forgive the limitations of human beings. Because as we've discussed and as we all know from experience, our power is rarely enough to guarantee that what we've said will happen is actually going to happen. Now, of course, we'll try to work and sacrifice and struggle to make it happen, but I want my family to understand that if someone wants something to happen and they try to make it happen and it doesn't, I want them to be disappointed because that's understandable, but I want them to be disappointed in the situation, not the person. I don't want them to feel like someone has failed them because that person wasn't more than human. They didn't have more power than what God grants them. I want my family to realize that a person's value and their worth is not based on whether or not they fail us. I don't want them to think more highly or lowly of someone simply because they were unable to do what they wanted because circumstances or whatever occurred and it wasn't the will of God for a thing to happen. I don't want them to put the will of God and the burden of that on another human being. I want them to instead trust that God is God. And if something didn't happen, perhaps the person failed because they were not honest, because they were lazy, but I want them to evaluate the situation based on the efforts of the person much more than the results of what they were able to accomplish. And now, before I kind of close this out, there is one thing I'd really like to clarify. So our passage in James says that it's prideful to say, I will go and I will do this. And instead, we should say, if the Lord wills, I will go and I will do this. And despite it seeming to be a command, I don't believe that we have to say, if the Lord wills, whenever we say anything to anybody. Instead, I think that this is much more about our heart position, that it's not about the words we say, but why we say them. And so whenever we are saying things, whenever we are committing to something, whenever we are implying that the words we're saying are true, it's not about, if the Lord wills, this is going to happen, but instead our hearts acknowledging and realizing that, I want this to happen, I hope it happens, But ultimately, I know that it is the Lord's will about whether it does or doesn't happen. And so whether we say, if the Lord wills or not, I believe that when James is talking about how this boasting, this pride is evil, 
it's my understanding that it's not simply because we don't add a phrase to the end of what we say. It's not about, oh, if you don't say if the Lord wills, you're evil. But instead, if your heart and your life isn't modeled after the understanding of God is God and it's his will that will see this fulfilled or not, if that's not what our heart is focused on, then yes, it's evil. Because we can add if the Lord wills to it and still be sinful in the things that we say. Again, it's all about where our heart is focused. And then another thing I want to say is that I'm not saying at the end of all this that it is a sin to make a promise. Again, it's about our heart position. Why are we making that promise? What are we assuming? What are we telling others? Now, obviously, I would say that it is difficult to make promises whenever we kind of pull away from our cultural tradition and kind of our lazy understanding of promises and instead come at it from a biblical perspective and understand what promises are and why we need to be careful about them. But... I am in no way trying to imply that if you have made promises or if you make a promise today or tomorrow that you are somehow in sin because you've added the word promise to something. Again, I believe this passage in James, like everything else we see in God's word, is much more about why we're doing something instead of very specifically what we are doing. Now, to close this out, in the end, the biggest thing I want to point out is that A biblical understanding of promises helps us to ultimately realize that God is God and we are not. And when we understand that, on one hand, it helps us to forgive others for not being God. We don't just give people a free pass for failing, but instead it helps us to have a proper perspective of saying that if someone thought what they were saying is true or intended for something to happen, but for whatever reason they were wrong— We can forgive them and love them and not add any unnecessary pressure or responsibility that a human being should not carry. It allows us to know who God is and who we are and to live with a proper balance of all of that. Another way that this understanding helps our walk with Christ is that it lets us love him for not expecting us to have power. We can have rest in knowing that, you know, we can make our plans, we can set out to accomplish something, but ultimately it's the will of God that is going to see something through or not. And so we can be well-intentioned, and I believe that it is glorifying to Christ to try to set out and try to accomplish the things that we've said, but ultimately we can rest in the fact that if something does not happen, or if we try to prevent something and it does happen, it's not that we have failed, it's that God's will was not our will. But that doesn't have to stay that way. We can instead rest and glorify God and say, God, this wasn't my will, but your will be done. And we can be just like our Savior in that way. And then in the end, as we integrate this understanding of promises and our own weakness into our lives, we can be driven to worship God for his sovereign ability to never fail to do what he's promised. So we can trust that God sent Jesus Christ his own son to earth to live the perfect life we never could and to unjustly take on our sin and be punished for them because it was a debt that we could never pay. And God did all this because he said that he would. Throughout the Old Testament, this was a promise that he made and he fulfilled it. We can also rest in the fact that we are redeemed by the blood of Christ because it's the will of God. It's not that we are so good and righteous because we figured it out and our neighbor didn't. But instead, it's because God is good 
and God is the one who saved us. It wasn't work on our part. It's nothing that we can possibly brag about, but instead we can give all glory to God for the fact that we are not his enemies, that we can be called his children, that despite our idle, loving hearts, God still loves us and never lets us go. And then finally, we can trust that God empowers us to live holy lives that are pleasing to him. Despite our weaknesses, despite our failures, we can trust that because God has given us the Holy Spirit in our lives to make us more like Christ and less like this weak, imperfect, and unsatisfying world around us, that God's not going to fail to accomplish what he set out to do in each and every one of our lives. He's not going to make us perfect in this life because that's not what he's promised. But what he has promised is that he would grow us and bring us to spiritual maturity and to make us love the things of God more and more every day because day by day, the Holy Spirit is making us more and more like Jesus Christ. And all this is happening because God has willed it and not because we have to work for it. 